Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We'll have uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell uh, speaking in front of Congress today. We already got his comments released uh, earlier this morning saying essentially that uh, the Fed policy is in a good place right now, but there are risks out there. To get a preview of what we might hear from Fed Chairman Powell, we welcome Diane Swank, Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. Uh, Diane, thanks so much for joining us here. you got to look at some of the comments from Fed Chairman Powell. What do you think we might hear from him well, the key issue is, one, they're on the sidelines until they see a major change in the outlook for growth. And that could be anything from an escalation of the trade war with China to some kind of escalation in geopolitical tensions like what's going on in Hong Kong, depending on how that plays out. That could have an economic impact as well, and that's something that they're watching closely. It was interesting that he talked so much about fiscal policy in his prepared remarks, warning that, you know, we're going to need that fiscal space down the road because the Fed doesn't have a lot of tools to counter a recession should we get there. And this is something that other Fed chairmen have constantly sort of gone on. He's joined the bandwagon of other Fed chairmen on this, talking about fiscal policy, the need for um, sustainable fiscal policy, and also the need to provide help when the economy does falter. This is something we only saw in the early stages in the post-crisis period. In fact, then fiscal policy became a hurdle for the economy as all the burden was shifted onto the shoulders of the Federal Reserve. And they know the dangers of that. They've already experienced the dangers of that. And they're worried also about the unintended consequences of too low rates for too long. And that's something he mentioned as well in his prepared remarks. And that's corporate debt. He's concerned about the lofty levels of debt we're now taking on and that that may be a threat to the economy when we have a downturn, making any downturn worse than it otherwise would be. The headline, though, is Jay Powell makes no news. He's successful, right? I mean, that's going to be the headline today. The artful dodger, yes. The artful dodger. Dodger at work, yes. Okay, that's that's in in Washington. Would you want to make news today if you were the Fed chairman? I don't think so. And and you know what? He he has competition. He has competition, so it's so he's in a a good spot right now. I am wondering though about the CPI data that we got today, showing uh, that without energy and food. It actually is decelerating. How concerning is that to you? Well, I think it's really hard is the unevenness of inflation for the Federal Reserve. What we're seeing is, you know, you've got a lot of inflation in medical care costs and medical services. That's up over 5% from a year ago now, where you've got a deceleration in many other categories. There was a big drop in apparel prices. That's been something that's ongoing. We also saw the reversal in new and used car prices. And this is something that, you know, the Fed, for the moment, has sort of sidelined a bit and said, hey, you know, we were worried about inflation being too low. We're going to wait on the lags on these three rate cuts we saw and see if that pushes inflation up, gets a little more heat in the economy. They're certainly willing to take that in terms of wages. And if that translates into more inflation, that would be welcome news for the Federal Reserve. That said, this ongoing stickiness in the low inflation environment, although it's high for some people, those people who are on fixed incomes and have to pay for medical costs more as a larger share of their budget, they're really screaming right now. On the other side of it, we're not getting the wage gains you really want for workers. And that's what the Fed is really striving for. So, Diane, we've seen really over the last year develop a scenario where the consumer increasingly is carrying this economy as we see weakness in manufacturing sector, uh, business investment. How long do you think that trend can continue? Well, you know, something's got to give. Either 
business sector has to come back a bit and shore up the foundation of growth going forward. So we get some productivity gains, we get some movement up in that, or consumers are going to take it on the chin if businesses pull back more and have the second shoe to drop, and that is actual cuts in hiring. And that's something we're really watching closely because there really was a very important shift that went on this summer and in this year, and that was a slowdown in payroll growth, but also the overall job openings are down four months in a row from a year ago. Still at lofty levels, that's great. Firms are reporting it's easier to hire than it was um, earlier in the cycle all of a sudden. That loosening of the labor market is the exact opposite that we want this late at a game at the stage in the business cycle. We want to see a little more heat and less fragility in the business cycle in terms of the labor market. And that's what so far has been really holding consumers up is the fact the labor market is still there. Not as many wage gains and, and raises as they'd like, but frankly, low prices at the pump compared to a year ago are helping them out. Huge sentiment shift in the market right now uh, from bearish to bullish uh, with a feeling that the disinflation, the deflationary trade is overdone. Do you think that there is data to support that? I think the disinflationary trade, it's not clear that it's overdone yet. We've yet to see the effects of tariffs on consumer products. That's still in the pipeline. But I think more importantly, though, is we've got a global situation that's still weak. And the you know, market seems to trade on you know yes or no answers. Is the global economy slowing further at the moment? No. Um, but it, could, it looks like it's plateauing at a bottom or bottoming out in some areas. But we don't know if there's another step down or if it's going to step up. My own concerns is that we're very limited in how much stimulus we can provide, and that China remains a real wild card, not only with the trade agreement, but just growth itself in China. It continues to weaken and surprise on the downside. And that's something that seems to be discounted in financial markets. This isn't like the Japan trade war in the 1980s. China is the second largest economy in the world with tentacles in almost every other economy in the world. So the ripple effects may not be through what we worry about in financial markets directly, but indirectly through growth. Diane Swank, thank you so much for being with us. Diane Swank is Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. There's a really cool article on the terminal today that really caught my eye, the title in particular. The Fed is losing its grip on U.S. interest rates once again. I thought the Fed was doing a great job. Alex Harris covers all things FX and rates for Bloomberg News. What's going on here? I was about to give uh, the big pat on the back to the Fed for getting this nice soft landing. (laughs) Well, I mean, here's the thing, you know, so there's like policy toolkit that the Fed works with to sort of keep the Fed funds rate within that band, which is right now one and a half percent to one and three quarters percent. Um, But, you know, part of the unintended consequence with, you know, these liquidity injections, these repo operations, treasury bill purchases, is that it's help push the Fed funds rate a bit lower than it might otherwise be. And so now, like, you know, with the previous adjustments, you know, when Fed funds was too close to the top of the range, well, now we're at a point where it's a little too close to the bottom of the range. So now people are wondering, well, if they were making adjustments to to interest on excess reserves rate, which is one of their tools in the toolkit, you know, when we're getting so close to the top, well, 
can we expect something similar in the bottom to ensure that Fed funds, you know, doesn't risk breaching that bottom that bottom boundary and instead, you know, stay. Okay, hold on a second. So for people who don't necessarily count themselves as interest rate wonks, the the larger takeaway here, as I listen to you, may be again going back to the repo issues and going back to this question. Is the Fed's balance sheet too small considering how big the market for U.S. Treasuries has gotten? It's a really good question, and it's whether or not there's enough liquidity. And, you know, some people would say, no, there's no risk of that breach on the lower boundary because there's not enough liquidity back in the system. And I think Powell also brought this up at the very end of his written testimony that we'll hear shortly, um, is that, no, we're fine. We're working on getting our reserves back into the system. Um, But, you know, there's still liquidity. Too much liquidity is not the issue yet. There is a question heading into year end. Are we going to see another repo market disruption uh, akin to what we saw in September, given the fact that we haven't come up with a permanent solution yet? I think we'll see some sort of disruption. I think that's being anticipated. Part of the reason is you have these regulatory factors at the end of the year, uh, surcharges for the big banks, you know, where repo, which can be punitive for the scoring, forces them to pull back. So we are going to get a pullback. Do I see repo at 10% again? Probably not, but definitely elevated. I think already year-end is trading somewhere above 3%, which you know, relative to where repo is now on a daily basis, somewhere around 160. Yeah, that's quite quite a move. Um, you know, I don't know what permanent facility they can put in place right now that would alleviate, you know, some of these issues. I, I think there's little things that they can do to address it, mainly how, you know, they treat the repo operations, because part of the issue is going to be is, okay, you have the repo operations and they stay with the dealers and that cash does not get out to the rest of the market and it's the rest of the market that needs that funding. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're going to have issues. And I think the Fed just philosophically doesn't know what they should be doing if they put a standing repo or a permanent repo facility in place quite yet. Have we seen this repo problem before? I don't recall it being this long in duration. No, I mean, the thing is that, you know, Post-financial, you know, the financial crisis was a completely different animal. And so post-crisis, you know, all these regulations went into place that sort of kept a lid on on funding rates, essentially, so to avoid scenarios like this. But now I, I think you have an interesting intersection between, you know, regulatory changes in the last decade, plus, you know, shifting monetary policy and, you know, QE, which we never had had before. And I, I think that's creating some of these pressures. And, and that's why I think everyone's a little confused as to how to confront this right. and what tools we have at our disposal, because I don't necessarily think it's just monetary tools. I think, you know, we have to look at this from a fiscal standpoint, a market structure standpoint. So there's a lot of interesting issues with this. The incredible irony of banks having so much cash on their books that they can't put the cash back into the system, but they're forced to have that cash in the books in order to meet their sort of risk uh, requirements. And Alex, you said this, that banks are going to be de-risking into year end. How close are they to doing that? Because we're hearing they're de-risking and that is part of the reason why you've seen volatility in some risky debt right now. I think you're getting close. I mean, you know, the other thing is someone had said it's not just going to be deleveraging, you know, across repo. It's going to also be deleveraging some of their derivatives positions and unwinding those as well. So there, there is a risk you're going to see this. I think we're getting close. You figure, you know, once we 
get near to Thanksgiving, you should start seeing some of this happen. Definitely December could be a little bit bumpier than <laughs> people expect because this isn't just going to be a last week of, of December kind of thing. They're going to start closing up shop, you know, and pulling back sooner rather than later. So there isn't no per se permanent solution for the Fed that we've seen at the short end of the curve in that repo market. Is it so is the kind of the de facto solution just to kind of let the balance sheet grow a little bit? I think that's what they're intending to do. You know, Lori Logan, who's um, de facto head of the markets group right now at the New York Fed, she spoke, I believe it was last week, she addressed the primary dealer annual meeting. And, you know, they seem to acknowledge that, look, we understand when there are pressures, we're going to be coming in. So, and, and they know that there are going to be times where reserves are going to shrink and they're going to need to combat that by, by doing something more. Either it's more repo operations, more treasury bill buying, um, you know, so, so they know. They know that they needed like there's going to be times where it's offset and they're going to have to keep doing more you know there's a lot of outstanding questions to this though and one of the things is how long is this really going to go on because people are thinking this is going to go beyond the second quarter of 2020 and how do you contend with a treasury that has seasonal issues with treasury bills where you actually get negative issuance in treasury bills so you have to think about a scarcity risk now in 2020 as well so you know there's a lot of competing forces and and you know it seems like the more the fed steps in the more complicated things get for them so it's going to be interesting to keep watching and i should just note that uh, yields on treasuries right now heading lower after the disappointing cpi data alex just real quickly here uh 30 seconds what may we hear from fed chair jay powell today uh, in about five minutes about this issue in particular. You know, I don't think, you know, he has a paragraph at the end, you know, offer a word on it. We're trying to get back to ample reserves. We see it as a level somewhere where we were in early September. You know, it'd be interesting to see what kind of questioning we get about this from the Joint Economic Committee. I think a lot of questions probably are going to center around regulation and what do you do from that standpoint to fix it? Because, you know, you had Elizabeth Warren's letter to Steve Mnuchin, you know, last month who was saying, hey, we, you know, don't use this as an excuse to roll back regs here. Yeah, right. So I think this is going to be one of the big issues for them, and then we'll see what else they come up with. We'll see what else they come <laughs> up with. I have a feeling it probably will be less repo, more political in nature. Alex Harris, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Alex is, uh, of course, covering all things interest rates uh, and bonds related for us at Bloomberg News. going to hear from Jay Powell testifying in front of Congress. But currently, uh, there are other testimonies going on, in particular, <laughs> the first uh, public impeachment hearings in front of the House of Representatives. Ari Nader has been following them. He's a Bloomberg News reporter covering uh, all things regulatory and Washington, D.C. Ari joining us from the nation's capital. Ari, what are you looking for from these hearings that you think uh, will be the most notable takeaway? Right. Well, today's historic impeachment hearings give the American people their first chance to see what's been playing out until now uh, behind closed doors and decide for themselves whether Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses uh, in his actions towards Ukraine. House Democrats are hoping to use the hearings to bring to life uh, thousands of pages of closed door testimony uh, and make the case that Trump abused his office and should be impeached for pressuring Ukraine to investigate uh, Biden, his political rival, uh, and withholding aid uh, until that happened. So Ari, what 
is the fundamental Republican strategy here as these hearings begin? Is it simply to say it was no big deal? Right. Uh, so these hearings did give Republicans their first high-profile chance to defend the president. I think their defense is, is multi-pronged. On in, in one hand, they're arguing that uh, Trump has done nothing wrong in calling for the investigations, and that his objective was not to, was to root out corruption in Ukraine. Uh, rather than to bolster his own political fortunes. Uh, they're also saying, um, you know, if he did anything, it's, it's not an impeachable offense. Uh, so I think, I think we'll hear that. And um, you know, already we've heard Republicans uh, call this a, a smear campaign orchestrated by Democrats and the quote-unquote corrupt media. Uh, so there's a kind of a window into the Republican defense. Markets don't care. That seems to be the takeaway yeah. uh, when there are developments in the impeachment hearings. Who are these for? Is anyone paying attention outside of the Beltway? That's a good question. Um, I believe this hearing is going to be televised uh, across the nation. I mean, this really is a historic event. This is only the third time in history that uh, impeachment hearings have been conducted. Uh, but to your point, um, you know, even if the House does vote uh, to impeach Trump, uh, that begins a, a Senate uh, trial, uh, and Republicans control the Senate, they're not expected uh, to, you know, uh, convict him. So, uh, you know, this could be political theater, but uh, again, you know, if the House uh, impeaches Trump and the Senate uh, releases him, that'll make it a, a 2020 uh, election issue. And I think that's, that's part of the strategy here. Ari, what do you think is a, a win here for the Democrats or those, you know, moving towards impeachment? Is it simply to just air all publicly everything that's kind of already been testified about? Right. I think what they're trying to do is move public uh, opinion. I mean, support for impeachment has grown, uh, but stabilized. Uh, we've seen an NBC Wall Street Journal poll recently that found 49 percent uh, favors Trump impeachment removal from office. A win for them would be to, to really move the needle to the point where, you know, Senate Republicans uh, don't have a choice or, you know, actually, um, you know, vote to, to impeach Trump. What's the timeline here? Uh, so Democrats uh, in the House want to wrap this up. Uh, by Christmas, which uh, if they vote to impeach Trump, then um, that immediately kicks off a, a Senate tr uh, trial, uh, which would happen in 2020, an election year, which <laughs> presents you know, its own complications, considering that many of the Democratic senators are running for uh, president and would presumably need to stop campaigning and come back to Washington uh, you know, for impeachment. So in a Senate hearing, what's the time frame for that? I can't remember the, the last time we've had one of those. We haven't gotten to the Senate hearing. Right. Um, so it, what I know is that if um, the House does vote to impeach Trump, then uh, the Senate immediately begins uh, a trial with the chief justice presiding. And uh, Mitch McConnell has said he doubts or he, or that Trump will not be convicted. Thank you so much for being with us. Ari Natter covering all things uh, regulatory in Washington, D.C. for us, coming to us uh, from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios. Ari, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.